Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. My guest today is George Manahan, who is an expert in public relations and evolving life changes that we'll get into more. And uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be part of your program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So for those people who are less familiar with who you are, can you share a little bit about your background? Sure. I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. Made my way to West Virginia by going to college at Bethany College, then came down to Charleston. And I've been in Charleston for 40 years. I've done radio and television. I've also worked for a governor as his press secretary. I've just had a pretty rich life uh, for the past 40 years. And then recently some significant life changes sort of in terms of your health. Yeah. I mean, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 12 years ago. Mm. Didn't know anybody with Parkinson's when when I was diagnosed and uh, went looking for people and I couldn't find any. So I've started a whole program down here working on getting legislation passed in West Virginia that's also going to impact uh, the country. So really excited about where I am on, on that part of my life. Give a little bit of background about growing up, mom and dad, what that was like in Morristown, what led you down to this crazy road to West Virginia? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. My father worked for AT&T in New York. He took the train from Morristown to New York every day. He was also the mayor of my hometown for two terms and lost out on the third term. And uh, my mother ran his campaign and I helped. We did these flyers, they used to call town topics. They were flyers to what we'd have to deliver every Saturday to 20,000 homes throughout Morristown. He got done with it. He used to buy us a pint of ice cream called Fanucci's was the name of the, the ice cream place. And now looking back at it, I think I was underpaid, but it was, <laughs> it was great ice cream. But funny is, is that my mother ran the campaign. My father hated running for, for office. Um, he loved the job. He liked the job, but he didn't like the marketing. Yeah. And uh, so my mother ran his campaign. Well, my parents got divorced after about 33 years of marriage. My father ran for office again, and my mother ran the campaign of his competitor, and uh, <laughs> she won. So what was so, in a way, given your marketing smarts, you've taken more from mom than dad, in a way. Absolutely. So what was mom's, what was mom's tactic to get him elected to, to mayor? Well, I mean, as it is local, it's going door to door. I mean looking at the precincts that you need to work and, uh, and go door to door. And uh, my father just hated that. He, he just didn't really didn't want to talk to people. He just wanted to do the job. So is it mostly organizational or does she pick sort of messages that resonated with people? Yeah, she picked the messages. She picked the location. Uh, my father won mayor because the minority community supported him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was a, he was hugely supportive of the, uh, the black community and the minority community, uh, Hispanic you know, that's, that's where his votes came from. So he'd have to go, but he, he didn't want to listen to anybody tell him what he had to do. You know, he, he loved the job, and, uh, but uh, he didn't want to campaign. Do you remember any of your mom's messages? And then we got to get particularly to the mom's messages for the opposition candidate. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it. Um, you know, my uncle was, was mayor before my dad, um, his brother. 
And uh, he was a campaigner. He loved to campaign. He had his own song, Stay With Ray, With Ray. A mayor he'll be, he'll be. His future is bright, you see, so stay with Ray. And he was the first Democrat elected in Morristown in 40, 50 years. And he won four terms as mayor. Then there was a break, and then my father came in as, as mayor for two terms. And the third term, he lost by eight votes. So your mom's work for the opposition was decisive. So what got her working for the opposition? I mean, that doesn't sound like it's one thing to split up. It's another thing to literally work for the opposite guy. Yeah, you know, I was in college then. So, uh, you know, I'd call home and try, try not to, you know, fire things up too much. But uh, we would talk. You know, I've done statewide campaigns here in West Virginia. I've done a Supreme Court justice campaign, a governor's campaign, lots of legislative campaigns. So when I'd call home, mom and I would talk about politics. I mean, that's... And what was your track record getting people elected? Um, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, those were wins. All of those were wins. Well, governor is a win. Um, the uh, Supreme Court candidate who was running a first-time candidate running against millionaires uh, was elected Supreme Court justice and then was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So, yeah. And and what, 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 okay, so this, this is, this is a rich vein too. What was the key when you, all right, when you, the governor comes in, what are you thinking to try to tilt the vote? Well, I mean, uh, it was, it was just not me. We were part of a whole team. You know, I was a press secretary. He was a first time candidate, mm -hmm. but he was a businessman, a very successful businessman. And his wife at the time was the top vote getter in the largest county in the state as a legislator. Mm -hmm. So she would take him around and meet the right people. But there were eight, nine people in that primary, first off, so in Democratic primary. So all you had to do was get 20% of the vote. So, you know, you, you look at how you're going to get that 20%. Um, you don't have to get 51%. All you need to do is get 20%. And what's the answer? How did you do it? Well, I mean, you had a lot of money, so uh, TV worked great back then. There wasn't a lot of online stuff. This was back in 86, 87. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, TV plays a big role in, in politics, even, even today. And did you have a simple rule that you, would, that you would apply in terms of crafting messages, what was successful, what was not? I'm trying to work on, I'm trying to work on my Twitter campaign, so I'm all years now. Again, we'd go through the strategy part, you know. Who's our audience? You, know, you, you work it. You've, you've got opposition research, which you do on yourself mm -hmm. and the other candidates. So mm -hmm. you, you know what they're going to say about you on top of what you need to say about them. And then you, you work your messages. Mm -hmm. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? He, his was a big education governor because his company had given a lot of money to education. His name was Gaston Caperton, and he uh, was probably go down as uh, one of the more popular governors in the state's history. What do you think when you abstract from your experience, both at Morristown and what you've seen in West Virginia, what do you think of the national political conversation? Uh, I mean, that's one reason why I really, you know, I do some campaigns now, but not many. They have to be really good friends and I have to owe them a big, <laughs> big debt. But what, why is that? It, 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 so because you're saying it's, it's so not very unpleasant. but Yeah, it's very mean spirited. And people are and not noticeably more mean spirited than what you were doing it before. Yeah, yeah. And why yeah. do you think that is? People aren't listening to each other. There's no, there's no more this conversation in the middle where you can listen to someone and understand what they're saying, even if you don't agree with them. And do you have any uh, a hypothesis about why that's occurred? I mean, people haven't changed, but something's changed about the way we talk to one another. Well, people don't feel as if they've been heard. 
Mm -hmm. I think the Trump people feel as if they've been screwed uh, mm -hmm. for many years. Yep. You know, people come take their job. They're, the people in my family, my wife's family, are Trump supporters. I'm not a big mm -hmm. Trump supporter, but, mm -hmm. but you can understand when you hear them talk that uh, no one's been listening to them. Mm -hmm. um, for many, many years. So clearly around employment, I get that, you know, that, oh, free trade is good for everybody. Well, it's not necessarily, it's devastating for some of these communities. Are there other issues that you listen to it and you say that makes, it makes a lot of sense? I mean, the other thing people point to is prescription drugs. Guns, I think guns are an issue too. Prescription drugs can be an issue. They just feel like they don't have as much money in their pockets as they have. But it's true, they don't. That That's factually true. Their real wages, well, if you just look at the distribution, the real wages of the bottom third of the distribution are flat to negative over multi-decades. And so if you're looking at people who are doing better, they're feeling like, hey, this isn't working for me. In terms of dollars and cents, that's 100% true. Yeah, but the problem is, is the way that uh, Trump has uh, expressed it. Uh -huh. It's mean-spirited as if you don't agree with me, screw you. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. And, and I think that has um, upped the level of, uh, of hatred in, in this country because they think it's all right. You can do it. If the president can do it, why can't I do it? Yeah. And I think I think for years they've, they've had this issue, but they didn't feel as if anybody listened to them or had the energy that they had uh, put forth on, on, uh, on several of these issues. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, it's also, uh, it seems like it's a thing with cause-effect, which I've been trying to write about, but it's a tough thing. It's a, it's a tough thing to get through, which is that the cause of why you have flat real wages for a long period of time, you could say, oh, well, China, you could say, oh, it's China. Well, it's really, it's more complex than that. And so the cause of why people are upset is complex, and it doesn't seem to do very well in a tweet. And so if that's the thing that's upsetting people, but the way you're explaining it to them is on a tweet, it's much easier just to say China's out to get us as opposed to say, you know, the Chinese want to raise their wages too. And the trick is, is to figure out how to have both sides raise their wages at the same time. And so there need to be compromises, blah, blah, blah. But nobody wants to have that. That conversation seems like a dead on arrival for any political campaign. Well, and the, and the big thing is how the independent's going to go. I mean, you know, in this next, next election, they're probably going to decide – you know, who's going to be in charge of Congress and who's going to be the next president. You've got the 40% on either side that are set in their ways. They're not going to move an inch on who they support. Yep. But you got the 20% in the middle. So when you see all these billions of dollars being spent on TV, and um, they're only really targeting the 20%. And did you try to target your advertising on that 20% when you were running? Yeah, Absolutely. 
And it's interesting, you know, in West Virginia, the Democrats used to be in charge and the Republicans used to register Democrat in order to have a say on who gets elected. Now it's the complete opposite. The Republicans are hugely ahead of Democrats in the state. And you have Democrats who are now moving over into the Republican Party in order to run for office or vote for who matters. And is the change in industries in West Virginia in terms of coal mine and greenhouse gas, blah, 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 all that type of stuff. If you talk to people on different sides of the political spectrum, what do they think about that, the economic change, that it used to bring wealth, but now there are these consequences? Well, I mean, first of all, West Virginia was always um, more conservative and more Republican. It's just mm-hmm. who they registered to do, to be. Um, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't say there was much change last 20 years on uh, the Democrats and Republicans. They're just calling themselves something different today. Yep. But, you know, we're a big supporter, obviously, of coal and gas. You know, but there are those people that say, here's an industry that rapes the, the environment, you know, doesn't leave anything even for those people that they take it from their property. Mm-hmm. So they're out-of-state landowners, and uh, they're not helping the state at all. You know, West Virginia is at a crossroads. It, it's a beautiful state. It can really start making huge gains on the tourism industry. Yes, it could. We have a new national park, which... I just understand that the the visitation is up 75% this year already. Uh-huh. So uh, West Virginia has an opportunity. It's small enough to where it can take care of a lot of its own problems, but they've got to take care of themselves too at the same time. So first of all, public relations. I started off as a reporter and I dealt with PR people. And then once I published a book, I tried to look at it from the opposite side as opposed to being bid by them, trying to get them to help me. Both sides are tricky. So take us into a little bit what you what you learned and how does it work? Well, I mean, uh, public relations is a lot of things. You've got a problem and I, I need to help you solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as simple as that. I mean, it could be reputation. It uh, could be a crisis. It could be just talking to a reporter and trying to get your story in the newspaper. You know, there's this love-hate relationship between reporters and, and PR people. Yeah. They, they, they like the fact that you can bring story ideas to them, but they don't like the fact that you can bring stories to them. So <laughs> they, they, they want to they get the story themselves in a lot of cases. So, you know, you have to have develop relationships. It's all about developing relationships with reporters and letting them believe that what you're bringing them is, is an honest uh, a story. Now, they may interpret it differently, and, and that's the way the game works. But you want to get the coverage. I mean, basically, that's from an earned media standpoint. But, you know, we do both earned media, PR, and advertising. So and we kind of bring them both together in doing what we refer to as public outreach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with a lot of nonprofits who, you know, want to gain something in the system, whether that's a passage of the bill or talk to the governor or legislators. So in that process... We help get the ground troops, the people who are actually going to represent the issue or crisis that you're working on. So we, we do that all the time. We work with a local library who couldn't get a levy passed. Mm. So we help them get a levy passed. And just recently, after the levy got passed, they just raised $32 million for a new library. Wow. Yeah, and it's, it was the largest public building project that was paid for by private funds in the country. And it was a brand new library down here. It was just, it was amazing. I'm glad to see people still want libraries. It makes me happy. Yeah. One of the things I've written about in my posts is how much the world has changed in terms of communication. I wrote one post where I went back and I tried to 
literally list the information sources. I grew up not that far away. We used to go out through uh, West Virginia a lot when I was growing up in D.C. There were literally three sources of information when I grew up. And there were books you got from the local bookstore or the library. There was the Washington Post, and there was the news, and basically it was CBS News. That world is as dated as the typewriter. And you've lived through some degree how it's shifted. So how do you make sense of this information environment just for yourself, receiving it, and also advising people to go through it? Well, what we do um, from a standpoint as an agency is we do what's called an on-target, which is a strategic planning process. So we, we sit down, and, and a lot of it's the same. When you start looking at messaging, when you start talking about who you're going to reach and who you want to talk to, what has changed is how you do it. You know, I sit down and talk to people. We, we, we say, well, what's your message? Who do you want to talk to? What do you want to say to them? So all that stays the same. What changes is now we have social media. We still have traditional media. One thing about social media is it's great from a standpoint of you can talk to a lot of people. But the problem, too, is that you really have to do a heck of a job targeting them. Yes. And that's, that's different than what it is today. Before, you used to be able to just do newspaper, radio, hold a news conference, issue a press release. Uh, that's no longer the case anymore. I mean, you really have to find creative ways. I mean, whether it's TikTok now, which is the, the big platform, right. or Facebook or whatever, it depends. You know, if you're going older, you go Facebook. If you're going younger, you go TikTok. But it's got to be creative. Uh, you, you, it's the same as before. You know, you have to get their attention. And do you find that you're able to break through the noise of these things? I mean, these are TikTok's a global platform. And in the past, say, you know, the Washington Post was far from it. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to work with influencers in some instances to uh, to get stuff, especially on TikTok, who have platforms. I mean, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. And that's that's part of the problem with a, a lot of my clients is they don't have the ability to keep up on it every day and, and to put up a new video or, or whatever. So from that standpoint, I say either say you, you do TikTok or you don't do TikTok. You don't do it halfway. Right. Interesting. Same with Facebook, you know, and uh, uh, Twitter and, and some of the other social media platforms. But, you know, it gets down to who do you want to talk to? Where are they going? What are they doing? Where are they shopping? What are they reading? Right. So, you know, that gives us a chance to sit down and talk to them in an um, all-day session and start talking about ways that we can communicate with people. And it's the same with Parkinson's. You know, I'll tell you a story. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and I wanted to find a local support group. Mm -hmm. So I went on a website. There was a support group at a church in Charleston. I mm -hmm. went there, and nobody showed up. Mm. And I went to the church secretary, and she said, well, you know, that hasn't been meeting for the last four years. You know, like... So I didn't know nobody with, with Parkinson's. Um, and uh, here I was trying to find someone, but there was no one in the community. There was no programs in the community. So what I did is I went back and said, look, I put on events. You know, that's, that's what I do professionally. Mm -hmm. So we put it together a, a foxtrot, 5K run and walk. Mm -hmm. And that f first time we did it, 200 people showed up. Wow. These were, these were people, and I say this, these were people suffering home alone. You know, they didn't want to tell anybody they had Parkinson's or it was only their close family. Yep. And they, they, they longed to talk to someone else who had Parkinson's, but there was nothing there for them. You know, after the 5K walk and run, we said, all right, let's put together a support group. First support group meeting, we had 60 people show up. Wow. And we have, in some cases, people up to 100 will show up, depending on who we have speaking at the event. It was a need that was in the community. We just had to do the outreach to, to get it. I think your story is so profound for a number of reasons, but th there's the just absorbing that big of a change in life. There's also the fact that 
you know, were the first, maybe the second generation, frankly, that's lived this long. In other words, if I think about my grandfather's generation, somebody who spent a lot of time with me, you know, who was born at the very beginning, you know, was born in 1902, the expectation was you worked, you raised your kids, and that soon after that, that was the end of life. Now there's a whole other section of life that is sort of post-kids before that, and a lot of it has to deal with health. When did you first start noticing symptoms? How did you begin to figure out that you were struggling with it? Well, I mean, you know, they say when you get Parkinson's, you can look back five or six years and you can now notice some of the symptoms were there. I had a frozen shoulder, two frozen shoulders. And if you ever have had a frozen shoulder, it's the most painful. What, what is it? Just describe it. It's basically all your muscles in your shoulder freeze. Uh-huh. And you can't, you can't lift your arm above your waist in a lot of cases. Oh, my goodness. So you, but you have to work it out. So you have to work through the pain. You have to, you know... There's really nothing they can do other than you work out with that arm, and it's very, very painful. Well, that's a precursor to having Parkinson's in a lot of cases. You can have a frozen shoulder and not have Parkinson's, but my loss of uh, of smell, mm -hmm. that's also a precursor of Parkinson's. It started with me with a twitch in my arm. Mm -hmm. uh, my The muscles in my arm tightened. I thought I'd uh, twisted an arm or mm -hmm. so. I went to my doctor, and uh, he said, well, we're going to send you to a neurologist, but then that first appointment was six weeks down the road where they're taking new patients. So I was at a, a fundraiser for a, a state senator mm -hmm. who's a friend of mine. And I was sitting there with a glass of wine in my hand. And all of a sudden, I had got a tremor. The wine glass fell out of my hand and shattered onto the floor. Mm. And there's a guy right to my left of me. He taps me on the shoulder and he says to me, do you know what you have? And I said, well, my mother thinks it's Parkinson's, but that's crazy. He goes, no, that's exactly what you have. Oh, my he goodness. Was the, he was the head of the local neurology clinic in town who um, diagnosed people with Parkinson's. And he then spent the whole half hour there telling me how great it was, uh, if you're going to get Parkinson's, to have it now. Because there's so much going on. That was 12 years ago. I thought it was the weirdest thing for him to say to me, that mm -hmm. this is great time to have Parkinson's. But... After living it for 12 years, I, I think he's right. There's a lot of research that's going on right now. And while, you know, it's, it's not great to have the disease, I've learned and met lots of tremendous people. Michael J. Fox, I've, I've met him on several occasions. Mm -hmm. We do a fundraiser for him, that Foxtrot that I mentioned before. We've raised over $500,000 mm -hmm. for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And I've just met really neat people. Um, finally, who have Parkinson's. Literally, what is happening? Like medically, what is Parkinson's? Sure. it's um, You have a chemical in the brain called dopamine. Mm -hmm. And your cells produce dopamine. And what's happening is the cells are dying off too early. So mm -hmm. you're not getting dopamine, which basically runs your whole system. I equate it to yeah. like having a car and oil in your car. If you don't put yep. oil in your car or oil starts dripping out, problems are going to happen with your body and your car. So from that standpoint, that's about the easiest way to describe what Parkinson's is. It takes away your ability to walk, talk, and think mm. um, over, over a number of years. It's a slow progression, and the, the progression is different in people, and the mix is different. So everybody with Parkinson's has a different form of it. You know, I have tremors. I have uh, muscle spasms that are, can be very painful. Mm -hmm. um, my, my ability to think slows down. I mean, mm. what it does is it, it attacks your limbs, your arms, mm -hmm. your legs, and your mm -hmm. head. 
Mm-hmm. And you'll see people who look like they're pissed off at you, mm-hmm. um, but it's because their muscles have frozen. In um, the face, losing and it, affect. And they, they're frowning because obviously you have to move your lips up to make it look like you're smiling. So people think that uh, you know, you're pissed off at them or mad, but it's just the condition of Parkinson's. So it's, it's, a slow, it's a slow process for me especially. And the, the emotional side of it, both what you go through and the, I imagine, I mean, statistically, many, 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 many people are going to go through forms of this, of finding out that they had, they had one vision of what the, the, the latter part of their life would look like and that it becomes very different. So what was it like for you and what's sort of your advice for others? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I first thing I thought about was uh, how is this going to affect my business? Uh-huh. You know, I, I have a business. I employ 12, 13 people. What does that mean to them? What does it mean to me? Mm. And you're right. You're, you look at it and you say, I didn't expect this to be part of uh, the latter part of my life. Now, I didn't start any of these programs and trying to find people with Parkinson's until a year after I had it. Mm. It was uh, tough for me to figure out. I was worried about my business, so I put my head down, tried not to tell too many people about it, tried to keep it to myself. But once I came out, it, it was like a burden off my shoulders. You know, people say, well, should I come out? Should I tell people about it? Number one, I think you should tell your family, absolutely, um, as soon as possible, mm-hmm. because they can help you through this process. Mm-hmm. There are a number of people, Michael J. Fox is one of them, who get it early on in their life. How old was he when he got it? 27, 28 years old. And he's now in his 50s. You know, for some people, the progression is very fast. Um, the, the way it works is the younger you are, the slower the progression. The older you are, the quicker the progression. Mm-hmm. So I was diagnosed at age 49. So I was somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And my progression hasn't been that quick. Mm-hmm. And is there any known cause of it? No, there's no known cause. I mean, they, they, they know that uh, certain chemicals, agriculture chemicals, can make you more prevalent to get it. Yep. But it, they, they guess now that there's 15% get it through their family hereditary um, and 85% are environment. So My father had shy triggers, which is a variant of something. It's related to that. He got it through environment. So, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, I didn't work on a farm, so um, the agriculture chemicals uh, probably didn't affect me. But uh, I took a test, the 23andMe, which basically says I don't have the genes for it, so I didn't get it through my family as of what they know right now. But there's no known cause, there's no known cause, no known co- uh, cure for it. Right. But you know, you can see me a little bit. I'm shaking a little bit now. So if you saw my hand, my arm, it shakes a little bit. Mm-hmm. What I try to do mm-hmm. is I try to stuff it into my uh, pocket so that you can't see mm-hmm. it. Um, because I don't want mm-hmm. you to start noticing first that I'm a guy with Parkinson's. I want you to notice me. I'm a guy who can help you with your public relations, your marketing. Right. So you, you, that's what I was worried about is would they still see me the same way that uh, they had prior to this diagnosis? And what'd you find? I found that they were all very helpful. Wow. Um, I didn't lose one client. Now you can't count the ones that you think you would have gotten. Right. But uh, my client stuck with me. My business actually is bigger now than it was before, and uh, I've got a great team here, so uh, it's it's worked out well for me. And did you go through a sort of psychological shift in terms of your acceptance of it, or is it something? Do you have moments where you get angry, or do you have, or you're sort of like, listen, this isn't what I expected, but I'm going to adapt to this as best I can, or does it flip flop back and forth? 
I, I was pissed off at the, at, at the beginning. It seems normal, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, Michael J. Fox says acceptance doesn't mean that uh, you're giving up. Right. I've accepted the fact that I have Parkinson's, that it's that it's uh, progressing. But there's some neat things that are going on. I had about five years ago what's called deep brain stimulation surgery, mm-hmm. um, and DBS basically is they put wires into your deep in your brain, and they connect it to a battery pack that's just below your clavicle, your collarbone, mm-hmm. and uh, what it does is sends little shocks up to your brain and helps produce some of the dopamine. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, I had my right side done, which is left brain, right? And next month, I'll go back in and have the other side done uh, because my left hand is, uh, my left body, part of my body is now tremoring and uh, getting a little out of control. So they can do that for certain people who have Parkinson's disease. And it'll take away your tremors and give you back your movement. pull the first part and the second part of this conversation together. The first stage was anger, but sort of the next phase after that was using the tools that you develop professionally, if you will, to apply it to then this thing that you have now. When you organize the the run, you said a lot of people, you know, the, the support group suddenly had 60 people. Was there a common thing that happened? Was In other words, was a lot of those people, how many of them were reluctant to share that they had Parkinson's? How many of them felt better when they, using your words, came out uh, with it? Yeah, I mean, and it was interesting, too, because everybody sort of said the same thing to me. They'd come up to me and they'd say, uh-huh. I have what you have. They couldn't say the word Parkinson's when we first met. Really? They basically would say to me, I have what you have. But then they went into this whole dialogue and diatribe 15 20 minutes long because they finally realized they had somebody who they could talk to about parkinson's who would understand they wouldn't want to let him go they said yeah. you know basically don't go anywhere i still got a lot i got to tell you yeah and it was it was hard for me to coordinate the 5k walk and run because every time i turned someone was saying to me i have what you have uh-huh. and and then talking to me for 15 20 minutes but you know and i had a, a person uh, when i was promoting it say to me, I have not told my family this. My spouse is the only person who knows. He saw you on TV. He encouraged me to call you. And and we got into a whole conversation. Well, she ended up bringing 87 people to the walk and run because she finally started telling everybody that she had it and she felt comfortable that uh, here was an opportunity for her to um, to talk to people about the Parkinson's that she has. Mm-hmm. So this is this amazing thing if you think about it. Uh, we had another podcast guest on from a totally different situation. He was a uh, a physician in Russia. This is before all this happened, which is a pretty cynical society. And his hospital was overwhelmed by COVID. And so he had the idea. He said, listen, why don't we just ask for volunteers to help? He said, I don't think anybody will respond, but I'll just put something out on Facebook. This is before the Russians had blocked Facebook, so it's different, <laughs> different era. But this is like during the very, I think this is the fall of 2020. He's like, why did I just ask for help? If nobody responds, we tried. And he was the head of cardiology at the hospital. It's not like he has 10,000 Facebook friends. He has like 500. So he put out on Facebook using his personal cell phone number saying, hey, listen, we're at you know Moscow Hospital. I think it's 56. He goes, we're totally overwhelmed. We could use volunteers. I'm not sure what we'll do with you, but call my number you know, if you'd be willing to. And he expected to get like five calls. 
it began being like thousands of calls. In a place as cynical as that, somebody forwarded the thing out on Facebook. It was really powerful for me, like the response. It sounds like you got this too. I mean, if you get put out the thing and then she comes and then she brings 65 people, it's like you really struck a chord. Yeah, I mean, and we put on this uh, Foxtrot now for, this is our 10th year. Uh-huh. And we've raised over $500,000, and the community really has stepped up. Yep. First of all, we don't have any paid employee. We're all volunteers. We send all the money to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. This year, we hope to raise $100,000. People have responded yep. to a great call from helping people with Parkinson's. We provide three free exercise classes a week. We have a, three support groups throughout the community. We do a symposium annually, all through volunteers. We, we really try to respond to the community, and, uh, and they've responded back to us positively. And so how has it changed as you go through this? I had an uh, acquaintance who is wrestling with something similar. He said it changed his notion of what he thinks of as heroic. And what he meant by that is, is that Going into that, he thought was sort of heroic, the person who climbs Mount Everest or who wins an Olympic medal or something like that. And he said now he thinks that the guy who is walking down the street, whose hand is shaking and his face can't get into a smile, he says that seems far more heroic to him than the previous visions of heroism he had. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you, you tell that story and I'll tell you a story back. So I was testifying in front of the legislature this past year. Uh -huh. And at the end of it, this uh, legislator comes up to me and he says, so I want to tell you a story. He said, uh, when I was growing up, I used to have heroes who were baseball players. Uh -huh. And I told my mom who my hero was, and she turned to me and she said, you know, you should pick heroes who are a little closer to home. And he said, what he does every day is he writes down a name of a person who he contends is a hero that he's met that day. And he turned to me and he says, you're my hero today. Wow. Yeah. That's really touching. Wow. So what are you trying to get passed through the state legislature, or have you already passed it? We've passed it. Um, the governor signed it. It's basically a Parkinson's registry. Uh -huh. They say there's a million people in the United States with Parkinson's, but they really don't know mm -hmm. because there's no really official count. Mm -hmm. So what the Michael J. Fox Foundation is doing is working with states to pass Parkinson's registry legislation which would allow physicians to register someone that they diagnose with Parkinson's disease. But what it also does is it allows you to get information. We know that agriculture chemicals can cause people to get Parkinson's disease. So we, but we have chemical companies here. So mm -hmm. people living around chemical uh, companies could get Parkinson's disease because of chemicals that are escaped in the air. We also have farmland here. Mm -hmm. So what this is going to do is going to allow us to get population-based data so you can plot them on the map. Oh. And it's going to allow us to find out if people got Parkinson's from being around chemical companies or around uh, agriculture, farmlands, and stuff like that. And it's going to give... That's, that, this is the only population-based data that researchers have. And we were the third state in the country to pass it. So what does it take, I mean, to put these two things together? What does it take to pass? I mean, I think that Americans are a little bit cynical right now in the ability of government to adroitly respond to issues, but this sounds like a counterexample. So what does it take to get a law through the legislature? Well, a lot of work, a lot of footwork. You talk about, you know, where I am today, and my experiences are unique to people in Parkinson's community. Because usually you'll have someone who is a fundraiser and that's all they do. Mm. 
you know, someone who lobbies, that's all they do. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who does support groups, and that's all they do. Well, I do all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked in the government. I've worked in PR, TV. You know, so I, I really feel as if I've been put in this situation because of that experience. And they, they try to clone me around the state, but there's really no one that has this experience. Uh-huh. You know, I was able to bring all that to bear on the legislation. So I got this bill from the from the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and that day, um, I was having lunch with the head of neurology and a lawyer for the House Health Committee. Uh-huh. House Health Committee lawyer is a friend of mine, the, the guy from uh, the neurology um, office. Um, I knew, he knew me. By the time lunch was over, we had the lawyer for the House Health Committee. He was going to rework the bill so it was localized to West Virginia. He was going to talk to his boss, the chairman of the committee, to uh, get the bill passed. And the head of neurology said, we'll house the, the registry here. So we, we had all that passed and ready to go within the first day because of lunch. Because of a lunch? Because of a lunch. I mean, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds so old school. It goes, it goes back to who you know. It goes back to how you work it. We're a small state, so everybody know. We say there's one degree of separation from anybody in the state. Yep. You you pretty much know everybody, and uh, you know who the people are. The question is getting them to support you and help you. And it also sounds like this is there's certain issues where Americans are extremely divided, and that if you even bring them up, it's like you can't. You can say the word guns or something like that, and that's basically the end of the conversation right there. But that's actually a relatively limited number of issues that are kind of radioactive. But this sounds like an issue that is, in a way, not ideological. Disease being and health being sort of not ideological. Everybody worries about it. You know, I, in my talks to the legislature, I said, you know, Parkinson's is not Democratic or it's not Republican. It, it goes after everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's the case. And, and I think... When you get into a conversation with them, everybody knows someone with Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Twelve years ago, maybe that wasn't the case, but uh, the number of people with Parkinson's is growing, both in the United States and worldwide. It will be the fastest growing neurological disease worldwide, and they expect it to double worldwide in the next 20 years. Oh, my goodness. And there's a huge cost to it, $52 billion a year. So there's incentives to, uh, um, to pass legislation. We're, we're working with our senator, Shelley Moore Capito, and uh, she's going to be the chief sponsor of a piece of legislation that's going to bring together all of the Parkinson's federal programs under an, one advisory committee because it's hard to coordinate, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. research funding for veterans, whether it's mm-hmm. um, other programs helping people with Parkinson's, putting it under one advisory board is going to make us be able to utilize, uh, you know, everybody's expertise together instead of separately. Clearly, you're, you've got a close collaboration with Michael J. Fox. How much does that matter, having a person like him who is connected with him? I mean, one of the things I found in promoting the difference between have in public relations, celebrities sort of break, somebody who has that celebrity title, it's like they break the rules because all of a sudden, if they begin talking about something, people listen because there's a relatively limited number of them. How exactly they get into that situation is complicated. How much has that impacted the whole process? Well, I mean, I think it's impacted it greatly. Although, you know, I don't think there's another Michael J. Fox out there. It's not something you say, well, Michael J. Fox did it, so we should copy that. You know, Michael J. Fox 
continue to have relationships within the industry, the movie industry and uh, the t TV industry. And he continues to have friends who can write big checks. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you look at it, he has raised, I think, over a billion dollars. And he is the, now the largest funder of Parkinson's worldwide for research. Wow. I mean, it started out with just he and one other person in the closet, pretty much. And he's worked his way through it. You know, I, some celebrities, you know, can be hurtful to a cause at some point. He has not been. He has just hmm. been a, a terrific role model for a lot of people with Parkinson's. So I enjoy him. We also do work with the National Parkinson's Foundation. So there, there are other organizations we work with. But obviously our first relationship was with the Michael J. Fox. For older people, it seems like this whole phase of life is just a, a roll of the dice. Somebody who I've written about in my podcast is my mother-in-law, who's 92 and in Moscow. And if you looked at everything about her life, you'd say she should not be healthy. In other words, smoker, very high stress life, terrible diet, no exercise, and she's unbelievably healthy for a 92-year-old. It just seems incredibly unpredictable, this phase of life, beginning where, you know, beginning, you know, roughly at the age where you were diagnosed. Does it change how you think about long-term care and planning and all of that? And again, what would be your advice to, to people who are thinking about this phase of life? Well, the first thing I do is if you're diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, um, get into an exercise regimen. Uh -huh. Exercise tremendously helps people with Parkinson's. And I've seen it where it slowed down progression, stopped it to, to some degree. Exercise is important. You can do whatever you want on the exercise. You just got to do it. It's got to be high intensive exercise three times a week. Mm -hmm. Two of our exercise classes are boxing classes. We have people who are mm -hmm. 80 in their 80s coming to do boxing classes with us. And there's nothing more gratifying. We had one lady who had fallen down in her house, broken her hip, and she got a new hip put in and, and she started coming to boxing classes. And she started in a wheelchair, then walked off the wheelchair, then was on her own. That helps them in the house because then she can get out of bed on her own. She's independent. Right, so right. So we see a lot of that because exercise works well. So that's the first thing I'd say to people. But yeah, I mean, uh, we, we have people, financial mm -hmm. planners, who come and, and talk to our, our support group and talk to people about how to protect their money, you know, what they should consider uh, as far as long-term care insurance and stuff like that. What's your view on that? Do you think that long-term care... I have it. You have it. Yes. Yeah, I have it. Um, I have a policy that will take care of me for five five years plus. That'll be five years less that my wife will have to, you know, deplete our savings. And is it one of those things that once you have the diagnosis, it, the cost explodes? Yeah, and I tell people that if you can get it through your business, that helps too, because then they can't deny you individually. So you know, there might be a way to work through that through your employer or your business. And any other big things in terms of thinking ahead? Well, I mean, a support group, you got to find a support group somewhere because you're, you're going to have an opportunity to need to ask someone about a situation you're involved in with Parkinson's. So, but there are also online support groups, which are great on Facebook. You know, they're not in person. We do virtual support groups um, from time to time. It allows us to get speakers from all over the world, but it also allows people who are shut-ins to join us. And is there anything on the science? You know, my father was a was a researcher and ironically was trying to stop diseases related to this and then, then, then struck him. And one of the things I saw in his lab was 
boy, making progress that you could be scientifically proven is really, 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 really hard, slow work. But I, I, I'm out of the loop, and you know, I wouldn't know anything about Parkinson's. It sounds like there has been some breakthroughs, but that it's that it's still far away from having a treatment. Yeah, I mean, there, there are treatments that uh, researchers have come up with new treatments, but uh, a cure, I think we're still a ways on, on a cure. Mm-hmm. You know, treatments like uh, there's, there's the gold standard drug in uh, Parkinson's, it's called levodopa carbidopa, which works well. But the problem is, is that over a period of time, it, it slowly stops working for you. So you're, the difference between on and off we all talk about we want to be on. When, when, when our medicine is on, it looks like we don't even have Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. But for some people, their on period is only two hours or three hours at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you see Michael J. Fox, he does a lot of this. That's not the Parkinson's mm-hmm. doing it. That's uh, the medicine. He's taking too mm-hmm. much of the medicine. So, so at some point, you take too much of the medicine, you get this swaying mm-hmm. part of it. So you, so, so you have to sort of balance what do I want to have more, the swaying or the shakes? Mm-hmm. You know, so what you try to do is, is, is limit the ability or, or limit the possibility of taking as many of these drugs as possible because the side effects are, uh, can be hurtful too. Does it affect mood as well, either the drugs or the disease? You know, there's two kinds of depression with uh, people with Parkinson's. It's a chemical depression. It's not, it's not like your, your brother or your father says, hey, fuck up, buddy. Yeah. That's more the emotional side of it. Yeah. And so you really have to be careful about that. Dementia is also a big part of Parkinson's. Between 50 and 80% of people with Parkinson's will get dementia. Mm. It, de- it depends on what type of Parkinson's you get throughout the, the years. You, know, you get hit with dementia. You can see you have hallucinations. Mm-hmm. I used to have this guy call me all the time and said, there are children in my house. Mm. And I said, do you think they're real? Mm-hmm. And he says, I-, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you go over and sit on them? Uh-huh. And see what happens. And he'd go over and sit on him. He says, well, they didn't say anything. I said, it's probably an hallucination. But there's still so much mental strength to go through that. I mean, terrifying. Yeah, and his wife was just, she kept telling him, they're not there, they're not there. And, uh, and it was just a scary thought for, for him. whole experience, politics, Morristown, New Jersey, Parkinson's. Your biggest lessons you didn't learn in school? Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that the Governor Caperton told me several years ago, and he actually used it as uh, something that uh, his whole staff could also look at and understand. And it's, it's a nameplate. It looks like a nameplate on this side. But if you flip it over, uh-huh. it says, be here now. Wow. And be here now is his way of saying, look, you work for government, you work for people. When someone's sitting across from you talking about their problem, you need to listen to them. You need to be here right now. Wow. And, and, and I've used it uh, to say basically that I'm going to take control of my life. Uh-huh. I'm not going to let outside circumstances change what I want to do and what I see as success. So um, I've used it throughout my life. I've, I've kept this on my desk. And when someone comes in to see me or talk to me, I know that uh, um, I've got to give them my full attention. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to seeing seeing what happens next with all of your uh, efforts. Sounds great. Thank you. 
thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.